Hi Smita. Hello, hello. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> in the spirit of what you said last week reading gandhi is i think you know, you're really getting serious if you're reading gandhi must be getting old i think that's the problem that is the other possibility yes you know i still remember oh god it was so embarrassing way back when i think it was probably 1990 no 89 or 90 my parents had just moved to vasantkund in delhi and this very serious group of mainly older retired men decided to start something called the federation for the abolishment of corruption in india acha before anna hazare anna hazare might have been one of them for all i know yeah. but uh, these old retired men met in this park close to my parents house and sat around and when they sat around they said something and then they paused and then they distributed some badge that they had made and then they sat around and i don't know why i was there besides accompanying my father on this other uh, nonsensical mission but it told me that we don't really want to start with the federation of the recovery of gandhi the mission itself probably was noble but what they were doing they were talking about how young people don't listen to them anymore Ah. <laughs> what they wanted was the federation for the abolishment of insolence in young people yeah we we decided that we'll read a few chapters the first four chapters for the first episode i don't know where to begin it's it's all very interesting because this was written in 1909 and i i think the idea that the british were leaving anytime soon was it even in the public consciousness and gandhi was talking about home rule swaraj it starts with this wave of home rule passing over india i'm trying to understand what the mood of the nation was back then based on what i'm reading it's hard to imagine purna swaraj as in the british actually leaving india mm-hmm. at that time and i'm unfortunately not a historian enough so i will punt on trying to even answer that question so my sense is we could not have been asking for full independence in the way we understand it today right in fact even gandhi says this right that what was available to canada and australia then is what's being passed yeah i think purna swaraj if my history <laughs> lessons remind me happened in 1929 so that was 20 years so, after he wrote right but i'm just thinking that even as an idea yeah right i mean what i'm saying is by that time by 29 it had become a political demand and mm-hmm. thinking he's writing a book so was it even possible to write a book with the sense that what they want is the british to just leave right right it's very interesting given how we feel today about the international congress the party that pretty much united the country towards independence back then is today synonymous with corruption with everything that's gone wrong in the country and it's interesting that back then the sentiments are kind of similar that the reader in the book is saying that you know congress is not really looked up to by the youth in india and that's quite interesting and then gandhi goes back to say that you know it's really the congress with the name international congress that created this whole semblance of being one nation i mean that's kind of hard to believe meaning that some other idea of nationhood might have arisen but i think gandhi was probably quite instrumental in giving a national face to the movement mm-hmm. right because my sense is 
would have been very hard to negotiate a transfer of power without popular a mass struggle of some kind whether it was of the communist kind that mao had something that had popular backing was probably necessary for creating a national movement mm-hmm. and gandhi was quite and the congress were clearly responsible for that and in a way that made it hard for other forms of nationalism to arise the communists in particular were pretty unhappy with gandhi right? because he stole their thunder mm-hmm. again the reader is kind of impatient and kind of not wanting to listen to you know like the old people in the park i think uh, the impatience of the reader is either it's imagined by gandhi because he's basically just writing for the two of them but the impatience of the youth and the impatience of anybody who's not at the same page as gandhi mm-hmm. is apparent i was just thinking that you know at the time of uh, the writing he was 40 years old which is uh, no longer young mm-hmm. right and he is trying to be a national leader after being in south africa in fact he's writing for an indian audience in india potentially even though he's in south africa mm-hmm. and he's talking to people who were probably a lot younger in the movement mm-hmm. right so it's interesting to find out how he positions himself right so he talks about uh, and we are now moving into chapter 1 mm-hmm. where he talks about the grand old man of india right dadabai yeah. naroji who's mm-hmm. even older but who was probably rejected by the young turks as too accommodationist and so was gokhale these were the people tyabji gokhale uh, vedambarn and uh, naroji who were mentioned in chapter 1 yeah. as essentially who are negotiating for some constitutional relationship with the british crown mm-hmm. while i'm sure there were people much younger uh, i'm just thinking we know who were the leaders in the 1905 post 1905 movement in bengal who would have been much much more strident so arobindo ghosh who later on of course becomes sri arobindo was jailed for incitement of violence so i'm just thinking that gandhi is positioning himself i think as someone who inherits the mantle mm-hmm. of naroji and others but at the same time he undercuts their accommodationist argument it's a very interesting dialectical strategy right he says he wants to learn from them that that just because we are young doesn't mean that we reject these people who came before us right he says such is the case with the grand old man of india we must admit that he's the author of nationalism mm-hmm. right? so so he's saying how these people are the giants on whose shoulder we stand and similarly like he does for these fellow indians he says similar things about mr hume ao hume and also william wedderburn yes. like he said again the reader is flabbergasted that it's okay to speak good things about the grand old man of india and gokhale and all of them but these englishmen gandhi is like if we if we don't enlist their support this might not happen as soon as we want it to happen so that's a very political uh, you know ally making uh just the shrewdness that he exhibits right there and again without knowing any of the actual history which we should probably go but some point he's writing this on the way home from london to mm-hmm. south africa mm-hmm. he probably needs friends in the english power structure mm-hmm. or people who are of some prominence in the english world to make himself a leader yeah. because that is something that in to use modern uh, startup language that's a market differentiating strategy yeah 
right? And in ancient political science, it's just diplomacy. Yeah. It's interesting because even in South Africa, some of his closest friends were non-Indians. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, were Jews. And like Tolstoy Farm, I think he started with Kalimba, who was who was probably his closest friend in South Africa. So I'm guessing that not just because of your political experience, but my sense is as an individual, he was more international and more open-minded because of his stay in South Africa than maybe the Indian leadership would have been at that time. What's interesting, of course, so he says that, so the reader says, I do not understand how the Congress laid the foundation of Home Rule. And of course, the editor is the Congress brought together Indians from different parts of India and enthused us with the idea of nationality. And I want to understand that further. Is that really true? Meaning, were there other organizations? Certainly, there were things like the Arya Samaj or Hindu Mahasabha later that were appealing to a more sectarian audience. And then there was the Communist parties, which were probably, which were not sectarian in the same way, but had a different relationship to the imperial power, for sure. I'm trying to understand, was the Congress the only large organization that would deal with the British, but at the same time ask for a non-sect, you know, in a non-sectarian way, uh, more rights for the people of India? I think as a political organization, it was probably one of the first that did so in a non-sectarian manner, pre-independence India, because Arya Samaj had a more social upliftment angle to it. But it was also, you know, I think Dayanand Saraswati is very much targeting Hindus. Correct. Yeah. Definitely sectarian. I think the secular principle that I think defined the International Congress, that probably because it was modeled after the Western political parties. I mean, I think it's very much kind of a liberal political entity, like in the way that, say, the whatever Labour Party would have been in England. But I think it would be worth asking what was the actual political structure of the Congress. Clearly, Gandhi turned it into a much bigger organization. Yeah, Gandhi definitely insists that it was the Congress that first brought in the idea of home rule of Swaraj to India can be debated. So the British also claimed to have united India, which was just a bunch of warring princely states. But it has happened. I mean, there have been many others before the British came to India who managed to consolidate a lot of India pretty well. It's very hard for us to imagine, say, what the Mughal Empire was like, mm-hmm. right? Meaning, what was it like to be a subject of the Mughal Empire? Because given how technology was, let say in 1650 you know no telephones no telegraphs nothing mm-hmm. and and my sense is that the british imperial rule which starts in 1858 right mm-hmm. with victoria becoming the empress of india is also a time of technological progress where you have uh, the railways and uh, the telegraph being very very new and nevertheless undergoing great expansion in india so what i feel is that the british didn't unify india or certainly were not the first to rule over the majority of the Indian landmass. But at the same time, they were, you know, sitting in Delhi, you could say what happened in or tell something to happen in Chennai in a matter of minutes in 1875 in a way that you couldn't have been capable of doing in 1670 over the nature of ruler. You know, just as an aside from this first chapter where I think Gandhi tries to talk about the role of a newspaper, of probably journalism,
journalism to understand popular feeling to give expression to it and to arouse among people certain desirable sentiments and also to fearlessly expose popular defects i think again journalism has at least in india moved really really far away <laughs> from most of what gandhi is saying in that very first paragraph actually in the book do you think it's also just a sign of times or just because that's how journalism is everywhere today in the world so i might have a slightly different take on it which is that this is a good for us but sad for gandhi in some ways a very small newspaper subscriber base of 800 with any luck even dharma police will reach that number soon <laughs> right so i feel that of course think that time of mid to late uh, 19th century was the beginning of print journalism and if you look at say pulitzer in the united states or william randolph first these are people who we will recognize as not that different from uh, arnab goswami i think i don't think so i think that they were pretty driven by prp like figures as much as these uh, our modern guys are nevertheless like now there were probably lots of experiments in alternative journalism mm-hmm. but but maybe because of a strong workers movement or in gandhi's case a strong uh, anti colonial movement there might have been a larger readership for these subversive or alternative uh, newspapers than there are today. I, I remember reading it that uh, when Chomsky was growing up in New York in the 30s, you could walk up to a newsstand and buy the socialist worker. Yep. Not today. Not anymore. Let's let's move on to chapter 2, the partition of Bengal, which mm. we kind of mentioned in the last podcast, it being the watershed moment which kind of began the murmurings of home rule in the nation. It's interesting because uh, Gandhi says very metaphorically that the seed is never seen because it works mm-hmm. under the ground and you know it mm-hmm. itself will be destroyed but the tree will rise above the ground and will be seen so a very lyrical again explanation of the entire home rule movement the silent movement that has been taking place in the country with maybe the partition of bengal being the seed and so where he says that that day may be considered to be the day of the partition of the british interestingly enough very soon after that he says that this does not mean that the other injustices done to india are less glaring than that done by the partition the right. salt tax is not a small injustice i so noticed in 1909, that 1909 yeah he's already talking about something which you might say becomes gandhi's signature moment many Absolutely. decades later yeah right? but yeah he was he had this in mind i noticed that too that and he took about 20 21 22 years to go ahead and break he was you know we cannot really imagine an injustice of a salt tax it literally is the cheapest thing i don't think I, i haven't really gotten into that frame of how can it be such a an experienced injustice mm-hmm. so, but clearly it is it was yeah so the other thing i want to mention is that we never think about you know for example he says that this is the maybe the whatever the first blow against the british empire right or the partition of the empire mm-hmm. what we never ever think about in fact which i never thought about till about Three minutes ago is we have never thought about inheriting the empire nobody said that yes it is the empire we all belong to it but the empire's capital should be in delhi you could have said yes let's keep the empire going it works for us it's just that it should be representative and it should be ruled by entire peoples of the empire across the world i think i think gandhi kind of alludes to what you're saying in chapter 4 if i'm not mistaken where he talks about the tiger but we'll talk about it when we're discussing chapter 4 another interesting thing in chapter 2 which i read was how the leaders in india were divided between moderates and extremists
extremists. Moderates were slow and the extremists were impatient and the moderates were timid. Extremists were bold. But he's also saying that I don't think this division is good for the country, but I also think it will not last long. Guess what? <laughs> it lasts forever. I laughed with a haha, a very dark haha, that no, Mr. Gandhi did not happen. In fact, the rift is that much more. And my sense is that Gandhi, because of his South African location, which is away from the metropolitan authority in every sense that term, it would be interesting to ask him, like the minute the Russian Empire fell and it was replaced by the Soviet Union, and mm-hmm. you had a revolutionary anti-capitalist state in power over a huge landmass, it would have become absolutely clear by then that, that maybe moderate negotiation is not the only way to um, negotiate with the British Empire. And I um, agree. I think I think those different uh, tactics are what ultimately led to the independence. I mean, the fact that we lose so much energy fighting the other party which has the same goal as us is mm-hmm. quite interesting. And sometimes we don't want to be seen as part of the same struggle because our philosophies are so different. And that hasn't changed. And I have not come to terms with it. It's, uh, it's not an easy coming together of the two. I mean, let us take something which we can say would be a very hot button issue today in India. Let's take something like Kashmir, which, as you can imagine, is facing some of the same issue. One kind of you could say, extremist would be someone who says that Kashmiris have full right of self-determination. We should have a, forget a plebiscite, we should just be an independent country, right? right? And another person might say that, no, we want full rights of citizenship within the Indian nation. And today, even the latter is considered to be anti-national. Right? Mm-hmm. Like if I say that the occupation of Kashmir should end and that Kashmiris should be treated as full citizens and should be brought within all the constitutionally guaranteed rights and responsibilities of the Indian nation. I don't think you can say that today and not expect severe repercussions. A backlash. You can imagine that if you are a Kashmiri, if I said that in Srinagar, I can imagine lots of Kashmiris not saying ha ha ha, you know, mm-hmm. uh, whatever. You're so far out of it that yeah. you don't even know what you're talking about. I feel that very keenly today because if you look at something like climate change, which is a global issue and which is sneaking up upon us in a way that some of these more seemingly intra-human clashes seem almost laughably small in comparison. How are we going to handle that? How are we going to, for example, what kind of negotiations and treaties will we make to come together about it? What is moderate and what is extreme? I don't know. Yeah, And the time to be moderate is probably long past. It's actually interesting that you bring the whole Kashmir thing up because um, we can move on to chapter 3 which is discontent and unrest which Gandhi says that it's a very important uh, aspect of a nation. Unrest is necessary because only then you, will you be able to outgrow it. So I think what's happening with Kashmir is unrest and hopefully, I don't know when the, the solution will arrive, but with climate change, I think the unrest is not even felt among a lot of people because it's just so easily ignored, even though it's just looming large. There's no easy enemy there, right? Unfortunately. No. Yeah. There's no tangible I mean, enemy. The enemy is us, unfortunately. So. Mm-hmm. That is what strikes me 
me because when you look at Kashmir, mm-hmm. for all its importance as a human rights issue, it is politically uh, yesterday's struggle, meaning that it is for nationhood, which is something which was humongous in the 20th century. But yeah. we don't think of nation formation as the 21st century political oppressing issue. issue. Yeah, climate change is and will be more and more so. What I don't know is what is the political form in which the demand will ultimately be addressed because there's no nation there it's not a national problem it is can't take the form of a national solution or even an international i don't even think that it is an international problem it's not a problem of negotiation between nations which is what it's being treated as right now yes we've not had many great results so far gandhi says that discontent will precede reform so how do you create that discontent among human beings about climate change would be an interesting question to think about without creating fear but creating discord and unrest i mean certainly so so for example just today the massachusetts state supreme court rejected a pipeline tax so the thing that i got arrested for did pay some dividends how good meaning that the pipeline which is being built will not be subsidized by a tax that i am going to pay those kinds of unrests are happening but bill mckibben has a very in the last few days an article in the nation where he talks about how the united states should mobilize against climate change as if it was a war right. uh, second world war Mm-hmm. That seems to be a call for unrest yeah. at a very large scale. But it's one thing to say it, and it's another thing to actually achieve it. I think that we haven't built the political structures like the Congress Party. Maybe one day we'll call Bill McKibben's, the Bill McKibben's of the world, Dada Bai Naroji. Of, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I hope. I hope Meaning, there's somebody alive uh, and <laughs> writing about that. A certain kind of constitutional disagreement has is now there, but maybe what. we need is a future of more militant but non-violent uh, struggle what does it look like what order what sort of party what is it going to be i don't know i mean in some sense it's exciting times also it's frightening at the same time Moving on to chapter four, which is the big wow. question: What is Swaraj? I think this is where Gandhi really takes off into the idea of Swaraj and what it means to him, and how the idea of Swaraj being just to drive the English out of India, which is the prevalent thought, is, is not quite what Gandhi means by Swaraj. For instance, he very clearly says, "Do you think if we just drive away the English, we'll get what we want?" Mm-hmm. The reader is like, "Yeah, I mean, if." you know they go at least say that they are going and they agree that they are going and then they stay back in india for some time i would have an objection gandhi is like so once they have retired what will you do and the readers like i cannot answer that question right now because uh, you know after that whatever happens after their withdrawal will depend on how they withdraw and we'll keep their constitution we'll carry on their government with our people we'll have the army we'll have you know the economy to ourselves and so we should have no difficulty in carrying on the government i think so somewhere in this chapter is where gandhi says you want the tiger's nature but not the tiger that is to say you will make india english but when it becomes english it will not really be hindustan but englishstan and that's not the swaraj i want and before that of course the leader says we must own our navy our army and we must have our own splendor and then will india's voice ring around the world 
which is essentially what we have today. Yeah. Right? Meaning that this is the idea of this is uh, shining India. Mm-hmm. And right? I think the independence that we got in 1947 was exactly as Gandhi has pictured here that we have driven the English out but we have kept everything the tiger's nature I love the tiger but you know in Gandhi's words the tiger's nature we still have we colonize our own people inside India even now the practices are still very colonial so we've just imitated the English after having driven out the English so this is where I am going to reiterate that puzzle I had before right Mm -hmm. because given that it was about a transfer of power rather than a new system of social relations. Mm-hmm. Why didn't they say we want the whole empire? That why didn't they say that India will just rule the whole world? Anyway, our soldiers were the ones who were fighting in Iraq world wars. and in, uh, mm-hmm. in world wars and other places. So why didn't they say thank you, now we will take on from here? I mean, meaning when, when you say they, it, who do you mean? So in Bangalore, there is this place called, what is it called? This Vijay Malya built this, it looks like the Empire State Building. UB City. UB City. Oh yes, UB City. <laughs> Uh, so, Mujay Malia built UB City, except that, and to make UB City look awfully like the Empire State Building, except that it is probably one tenth the height of the Empire State Building, mm-hmm. right? And so, what I don't understand is that the extremists or the India shining people are not even ambitious in the way that the tiger is. Right? To say that they don't want to be a tiger, they only want to be a jackal. They are, they're happy being a cheap imitation. So, that I don't understand. So, here I think the Chinese are very honest about it, right? I mean, they see themselves as imperial people, that, mm-hmm. that in some sense being the most powerful, important nation is something that they take for granted as their historical inevitability, which we don't, right? Where I feel we are failing is as neither offering that full alternative, that we don't actually have to be an empire of any kind, mm-hmm. either internally or externally, and we don't have to go around uh, conquering every other place either. So how can we avoid the halfway stage and also the fully aggressive? The 20th century told us that if you get into a competition over who is the biggest tiger of all, that inevitably that leads to madness and destruction. It's kind of stupid to go in that direction. I don't think we need to be a mini tiger either. I'm, I'm happy that they did not go the way of, you know, let us take, take over the whole empire. But uh, I completely agree with the Gandhi on the fact that just being that poor imitation is not going to help. And it has not helped. Mm-hmm. So, but but this is where uh, Gandhi acts as a complete suspense master and starts off with what you are understanding as Swaraj is not real Swaraj, and I am going to tell you what Swaraj really is. And we are not going to kill the suspense either because we are now at the end of chapter four, and you just have to wait till the next podcast to find out what's next. Okay, can't wait. All right, so you're welcome to read along, like we said, at mkgandhi.org slash Swaraj and Gablu Bablu. No. no. For the record. No. Okay, so until next time, we'll be reading Hind Swaraj by Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi or as our Prime Minister calls him, Mohanlal Karamchand Gandhi. And, chapters uh, 5 through 8. Chapters 5 through 8. Okay, bye Rajesh. Bye.